Hello, sales heroes. It's Alex. For this very special episode of the Ask Alex podcast, I had the pleasure of spending time with Anthony Yanarino, a friend and author, speaker, entrepreneur, forward thinking on selling and sales culture. I was previously a guest of Anthony's podcast, The Anthony Yanarino Show, and I was so thrilled to be in conversation with him again. We talk about a lot of things. We talk about how can we develop discipline and grit to elevate our sales process? How can we modernize our sales approach to be one of deep discovery and intention? Anthony will also be a speaker at the upcoming Empath Conference this December in Santa Barbara. I'm really excited for you to hear our conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Let's dive in. Salespeople understand that it's not the product, it's not the market. I don't care what you're selling. Right. I don't care when you're selling it. I don't care if the market's down or up. What I care about is what is it in you that drives you to actually do this job? And the intention usually in order for it to work or what makes great sales performers is, is those people that are driven to help others with such profound grit and discipline. Talk to me more about um, this discipline, this self-discipline, this me, it starts with me. How did you discover I, that? I became uh, incredibly disciplined just sort of out of, um, <clears throat> I don't know, like what you would say. I, I started working full-time when I was 13 washing dishes. And so there was something about washing dishes that gave me a type of discipline that, that sort of started to permeate other parts of my life. So, um, like you, you have to show up on time and I, I miss washing dishes for one particular reason. Like at the end of the day, your work is done. Like you can see all the dishes are stacked and there's no part of you that's nagging you. Like, what about that thing that was left undone? Nothing is left undone. When you wash dishes, it's done. You turn the, the lights off. Everything's beautiful. The next day you come in. And then it's chaos again. What I noticed though, for most people is that if they don't have discipline in an endeavor where there's incredible autonomy. So in sales, no one's going to come around and say, Alex, I need you to make your calls today. I need you to, to do your work. And so like, if somebody has to do that, you're not going to be long for this profession. So the discipline is, can you will yourself to do the work? And for me, that's the cornerstone because the next thing that shows up in that book um, ends up being your attitude. And so your attitude is a discipline. The whole world is on fire all the time. It's crazy. And if you want to get infected with negativity, just turn on the news and, and you'll be infected in a few minutes. Like there's no doubt about it. It's divisive. And so you have to have the discipline to have the great attitude that you need to go into an endeavor where people say no, where it takes longer than you think, where you're getting people who are saying no to an offer that would be good for them, even though you've done really good work with them. All those things are true. Mm -hmm. And you, then you have to have the dis discipline of caring. So that's the other orientation. So that's a discipline. So I don't know what comes first, the cart of the horse, uh, discipline, I believe is driven by what you value and how much you want it. For, yeah, but some of it is just a habit that you develop. 
Oh, like certainly. You, yeah. So some of it's just your habits. Like what do so you washing do? dishes? You couldn't, you, you, be, it, it was habitual. There was a yeah. process to it that you couldn't skip a step. No, you know, you couldn't do shortcuts. You know, there was a certain step to getting them from dirty to clean. And none of that had to be, could be skipped. You couldn't shorten the process, but you could become more effective and more efficient at it by actually faithfully following that process, knowing that at the end, the dishes are going to be clean. But it was the discipline that stuck with me. And I noticed that a lot of people just couldn't discipline themselves. And one of the reasons that I was good at selling originally is because I could sit down and call from eight o'clock in the morning until five o'clock without ever losing my enthusiasm for it, without ever feeling like, why do I have to make these calls? I just dialed and I just dialed and I dialed and I dialed and everything worked out fine. <laughs> and so I just think that that was the, if you can get the disciplines right, everything's easy. If you don't have the discipline, everything is hard. And it's really hard right now because when we start talking about tools, there's so many distractions. I mean, there's so many things that you could do other than, than, than your work now. In uh, your book, you mentioned something, and I want to talk about lazy selling, but most importantly, <laughs> which could be translated into lack of discipline. Yeah. Um, I think... You know, I, I just I, I'm interested in your take on this because um, you, you know you talk about shiny objects and how easily our brain gets distracted, but one thing is a distraction, and the other one is to try to find the path of least resistance. Uh, is is actually, you know, losing faith in yourself or your process too soon and wanting to at the first sign of rejection or i'm not ready to buy or this is not for me um i give up and i go to right. the new lead i go back up to the top of the funnel give me more leads these aren't any good they're not buying <laughs> not that they're not buying is that you're not selling how do we skill people up to actually not give up it, it's discipline is focused but it's the ability most people don't believe that they can change somebody's readiness, that they can, you know, uh, through conversations and, and digging deeper and building trust and really understanding the, the full scope of this buyer's problem, that they can actually facilitate a decision-making process, especially when that person isn't ready to buy right away. And importantly, that because in our industry, the people that are ready to buy have urgency. And if we focus only on the people that have urgency, are, you know, we are actually hurting um, our business because we, are, especially in senior living, you're getting people that don't have a choice. And therefore, it creates an environment or a community of people that are, you know, hurting, that are higher acuity, that they didn't own their decision to make that move. Right. And we're leaving behind a huge part of the lead base or the market, the lead base that is, has a discretionary decision. When you, when you say this, it makes me think about <clears throat> this in a different way. Um, I think that as a salesperson, well, 
this is the subject of my fourth book. So I'm going to preview it for you here, but you have to go with me because it takes a minute for me to get this set up for you. Otherwise, you're going to think something that's not true. And I don't want you to think something that's not true. In any dynamic with two people having a conversation, one is in the one up position and one is in the one down position. Now, it's my contention that as the salesperson, I am one up and my client is one down. And now why is that? I have information that they don't have that would be necessary for them to go one up. Like they can't get to the one up spot from where they are without somebody helping them. So what I don't like about what you said as you were describing this group of people is that if they're not all ready to buy, if they're not all ready to buy right now, then they're not worth my time. They're the only thing that's worth your time because these are the people who you know more than they do. Now, if somebody said, okay, it's between you and your client, which one of you knows how best to make that decision? Well, it better be you. Like you better know more about the choices that they're making. You better know more about how they fund that. You need to know more about how you talk to their family about that. You need to have more conversations with people that allow you to see and understand their situation better than others. And so when you say like, well, they have to already be ready to buy. Well, then all I need to do is have an order form on this, the, the internet, because order that's all papers. you're doing. You're not doing anything different than that. Well, that's so exactly. You're not creating value. You're subtracting value. So let me say this though. If they get to the point where they have to go and you didn't spend the time with them to prepare them, then you're not being proactive. You can never be a trusted advisor. A trusted advisor isn't like, uh, Alex, you totally screwed that up. It ruined your whole business. I don't know what you did. You should have called me sooner. Well, where were you sooner? Like, why didn't you help me when you knew that this was going to happen? We know the challenges that they're going to have when they make this decision because they're universal. They're universal. These are difficult decisions and we know what they look like. There's a shape that we can see and you could, you should be the one that steps in and says, I'm here to help make sure that whether you do this today, whether you do it six months from now or six years from now, these are the factors that you should consider to make sure that you make the best choice for yourself or for your family or for all of the stakeholders involved in this decision. Why would you ever give up such a wonderful opportunity to help somebody with such a difficult problem? Why here's would the, you? Here's what happens. I, I completely agree with you. And of course, uh, so I love the idea of one up, one down. Um, but before you even get involved in adding value is, do they need you? Is, is your offering and everything that you know about the solution the right fit for them? So in the beginning of a conversation with the buyer, you have, you're one down because you don't know anything about the oh, person and the problem. You're, in you're one sense, down right? in a whole bunch of ways. Like It's like this idea of open before you close. I always say open people before you close them. You refer that in your book with a different language, but this the new closing is opening. And yeah. that's where you need to sort of 
become a partner, a partner or an advisor. If you start, if you start down the journey of like, I'm going to try to figure out how to add value when I don't really know if they need it. Well, so you, what you said is exactly right. Like the client is always one up as to the knowledge of the client and their scenario. Like they're always one up. They live in that body that you're looking at mm-hmm. and all of their one upness, like you can't know them better than they know them but you can know how to help them if they agree that they have a certain problem that they're trying to resolve mm-hmm. or a decision that they're trying to make. So the thing about being one up, it's not like a position from power. It's not a, a, a hierarchy. It's in this particular case, I know more than you know, but in a hundred other cases, you know more than I know. And so the only way that we make a good decision together is you correct my one downness right? And I correct your one downness. And now we're both one up and we can make a good decision together because that's what we do when we do our very best work. And so the reason I always have to caution this, because I just started teaching this concept this way. And I don't want anybody to think that this is about like, I'm superior or like, no, you're not like in many ways, they're, they're always going to be one up in a dozen things that you've never even heard of. Like there, there's no doubt about that. That's true. So in order to create that, go ahead, sorry, that balance, this reminds me of that uh, motivational interviewing and dealing, helping someone with ambivalence and understanding how to listen for ambivalence as a seller. And now we're getting into deep topics about empathic, the empathic process. Uh, It's like the concept of the seesaw, the buyers on the one side, you're on the other side. How do you get to a balance? in which you have this total understanding. So there's not this push and pull of you trying to convince and the buyer resisting you. How do you get into that homeostasis in which now we can have a conversation? So, so the, the concept of being one up is, is not about being one up over the other person and having to maintain that, even though sometimes you do have to ask a question to remind that person that they're missing some sort of information that might change their mind. Mm-hmm. So we, we call that information disparity. And a lot of what we do when we sit down with clients is correct information disparity. Like, I can't do that, Alex. It won't work for me. Well, why do you say that? Now, I, I got to start understanding what they know and what they feel so that I can give them the right information and help them with that. But it's never about trying to one-up the other person. So if you want to watch a a, a good funny video. There's a Monty Python skit that they did where each guy's trying to uh, one up the other on how bad their childhood was. And it's, it's really funny, mm. but you're not having a contest with your client. The, the concept of one up just means I know more than you do in this narrow area that we're talking about. Now, I hope that you know way more than I do about all the other areas that I can't even see. But it occurs to me that at the end of that process, gosh, you know so much more about yourself and the other person. You You know so much more. You fill in the gaps of your understanding of the other and you filled in the gaps for for the buyer of their understanding, not only of your product, but of their own situation. Right. How important it is for me to change. How difficult will it be for me to change? Um amazing. I love it. I, I love how do you get concept. certainty. How do you get certainty if someone can't show you all the things that you can't see, but that they can see the reason that you're uncertain is because you don't have a clear understanding 
and you have fear, you have unresolved concerns, somebody has to help you with those. And if you right. could resolve them yourself, you would have resolved them yourself. But you but have the to reason, trust them. You have, you to, trust have to trust them. them. You have those yeah. fears. You may or may not be aware of them. And they may object, you know, may um, show up as concerns or objections, uh, which are really most of the time expressions of fear. But, you know, you have to have a certain understanding with the buyer that, what your role and your intention is at all times. Otherwise, they will not open up to you. You will not be able to ask the right questions because you can ask the same question with a different intention. Um, same question, one as an attempt to manipulate and one as an attempt to really understand. Right. And when you ask a question to manipulate, what's going to happen when they answer it is you're going to hit them with your solution right away. Um, you know, mom can't drive anymore. You know, that's one of the reasons why, well, we have a van here at Shady Pines. She can mm -hmm. go, right. like, I don't care about your stupid van or your solution. I am struggling with the fact that my mom is isolated and a prisoner of her own home. What does that have anything to do with a van? Right. And so salespeople, when, you know, don't, you know, what I... What I'm attempting to, to have conversations about and to help salespeople with is understand that their intention to help and the discipline to ask the right questions, to really be in the right frame of mind, to create that environment with the buyer in which the buyer is open, open to discuss their fears, their what needs to change in order for them to buy their motivations? Where else are they looking? Whether or not your solution, you know, there's, there's all these different aspects to the journey of the buyer, but fundamentally, you know, I, I love this idea of intention and then conversation. We talk about a process of connecting, open people up, building trust, stating your intention out loud, so not only do you, are you driven by that intention, but your prospective buyer hears it from you. And then you get, create opportunities and ask permission to have conversations that are not going to manipulate the buyer into your um, trying to convince your buyer about your solution. The conversations are only based around their motivation to buy, the barriers, the areas in which they may not have considered where they need to consider. Anyway, if you why look at a book, so hard. Why is this so hard? Why every time that we put on this intentions, hat? intentions, like I'm trying to sell. And, you know, I hate the idea when people go like, stop selling and start helping. And it's like, well, that's the same for me. If it's not the same for you, you know, I don't understand your statement because that's all I've ever been trying to do is help somebody get a result that they couldn't get without me. That's all I've ever been trying to do. So when you say it, like you act like that's not what most salespeople do. We mostly do try to help, but a lot of people, it takes time for them to sort of just sort of sit back and let things come to them. Like you don't have to push so hard. You don't have to try so hard and you don't have to chase. There's a very, very good in, in, uh, important book that you might want to read if you're if you're listening to this and this is an interesting conversation to you. 
um, Alex and I could just talk to each other anyway. Like we would talk, we're just happened to recording this one. Like that, that's how it goes. We've recorded another one. Uh, I recorded that one, but we could do this every week and never, ever get tired of it. But there's a book called Immunity to Change by Robert Keegan. And Robert Keegan is a developmental, um, he studies development. And, and basically he was the first person to recognize that you don't stop developing when you're 18 years old, you continue to develop. And he started to study the development of, of human beings. And I got to him through Ken Wilbert's work, but uh, immunity to change suggests that the reason that people don't change is because they have hidden commitments. They have certain hidden commitments that they don't say out loud. And then they have these expectations of what happens if something changes their, their commitment. So my commitment might be, um, try to think of something that I could make practical for people here. Um, my mom moved her mom in with her and she lived with her for 13 years. True story. Okay. So I can't imagine, you know, what does that make me? if I don't do the same thing that she did. Right. So there's this commitment to you, like, you nailed it. I yeah. Love, so, so this it. is the kind of thing, like, they're not going to tell you, like, the reason I'm struggling with this is because what does it mean about me as a human person? Like, what does it mean as a human being? What does that mean about me? And so you, you're giving them a conflict, right? So there's this conflict here that, that says, well, are you better prepared to take care of that person? than a group of people who are dedicated to that task when you have young children right now and you're already working 50 hours a week. Like, so I, I can I mean, see. I'm blown away by this because, so, go ahead. The, uh, the immunity to change, like this is why it's hard for people to change. And Keegan and Leahy, uh, who, who did this research with them, they found a way to help people recognize their hidden commitments. And, and they're, they, those are their immunities, like it's hidden, but I can't go along with you because I have a strong need for significance. And then when you take my significance away, you know, people aren't going to think that I'm as important as I think I need to be. Okay. So oh they don't say it out loud, but if you pay attention and I've spent my whole life trying to understand how to help other people. So I have some pretty good lenses that I can look through to figure out what those immunities are myself, because I've, I've made a practice of studying them to say, what is their immunity? Like, what is it that they really need? And we all have these needs and we're going to meet those needs one way or the other. So the, the, that's going to happen no matter what. I am dying to, to jump in here. I just spent, uh, so the next podcast is going to be with my mom. I interviewed her about the process of her deciding to move to senior living and the resistance and the conversations, the, the commitments that she had. And right. we kind of brought it all out. And it were things like those places is the place where you go to die. She was committed in a sense to that belief. It was like an internal belief that, you know, when it's interesting when you study the brain and you see how you have an emotional reaction to a certain notion or idea. It's, it's something that just got ingrained in you in your sort of in your memory. 
and it keeps resonating, even though it's no longer true. But that is what you have held as a belief because you formed it um, with a deep emotional reaction to it. So for example, to your point, you know, all when I was young, all the older people moved with their children. And the only people that moved to one of those places were people that were very old, very sick, or very poor, or they had unloving families. So that is a, it's not even a dialogue, that is an emotional response that the buyer brings in, that bias, that commitment that's hidden. And you're trying to gloss it over and say, oh, you're going to love it here. And But we and have a all, van, Alex. We, have, we have a, a van. van. And that's all true. It's true. It just but doesn't the, resolve that. It doesn't resolve that. Yeah. And that person has to resolve that for him or herself. That person has to be helped by a skillful, heroic salesperson that is willing to have that conversation rather than saying, you're gonna love it here. Perhaps you say, so when you think about retirement, what comes to you? What comes to your mind? How do you feel about that idea? And, and let's explore those beliefs, say them out loud so that then as you hear them, you become aware that that's a bias that you're holding and that it may be holding you back. And then you just acknowledge that as part of that person's set of values and beliefs. And more importantly, they acknowledge that. So we all say we want to help people. And I believe that's true. I believe most of us want to be helpful. I think, you know, the, the, but many of us have no idea how to do it. And we think that by convincing you or telling you what I think is right for you or, you know, assuming that you have this need and I have a solution that that's helping. What, what's wrong with the idea that the person is eventually going to make a decision based on who helped them the most, mm. who, who created the most value for me in the process. So when you tell me I had one meeting, not ready to buy, I'm walking away. You've said like, I'm withholding my help. I'm only going to help you if you're ready to buy. Exactly. Well, that, that's not helping. Like if, if you have to only buy, or if you can only sell to people who are ready to buy, then you're never going to make a difference in anyone's life. And you're right. And I think I, I believe, and I know just from my experience of selling for 20 years, you know, being that the more, first of all, you don't give up and people, when they get across the Rubicon and get from, I'm not ready to like, I move, they come back and say, wow, you really, really helped me. Even though they don't even recognize you doing it, they did the work, you facilitated the work. They did the hard work of getting ready for change and accepting change. They did the hard work, but you are the facilitator. And what happens is they are much more likely to choose you versus the community down the street because bottom line, people don't make big decisions based on features. And, you know, especially when you have a product that's largely undifferentiated from others. And we're struggling as salespeople to say, well, we have this and they don't have that. But most people, especially when it's a big change and it's a momentous change, will choose your product based on how you made them feel, 
how they feel seen and understood. And based on the fact that, and, and the salesperson and this desire of, I, I'm sticking with you, I'm seeking to understand you, I'm going to map out this process for you and I'm going to let go of the outcome, my outcome and seek transformation in you. When I do all that, I am reflecting my company's values. A salesperson is the way that we sell reflects what our company is all about. They understand the company, not what we offer, but who we are as a company, regardless of what you're selling, by the way you sell. One of the things that I, I've recognized is that when we do our best work in discovery, it's not that we discover everything about the client. It's that they discover something about themselves. I love so you, Anthony. That's, that's it. That's, that's the difference between what I would call a legacy approach to discovery to a modern approach. So a modern approach is they have to see that they have that hidden commitment. They, they have to see it. Like they, they feel it, but they haven't said it out loud. It's not objective for them. It's, it's inside. It's so internal that if once it comes out and they recognize it, then it can be solved. So the work that Keegan does is he makes people recognize their own hidden commitments. Because once you see your hidden commitment, you're like, it's okay. I can do something about this. Like, but when you don't know that that's your hidden commitment or you can't say it out loud, then, then it's very, very difficult for you to resolve. And then this is why people spend a lot of time in therapy <laughs> so they can learn about themselves, right? Like I have to learn like what's going on in here so that I can get it out of here and I can look at it objectively instead of subjectively all the time. And I mean, this is like, this is a very, this is not like a, a B2B kind of uh, conversation that we're having because this is the stuff where people, they're always intrigued with it but they also have a difficult time sort of thinking about how do I execute something like that? And I would just tell you the more room you can make for the client to learn something about themselves, the better you're going to do. Like it just never fails when they start learning about the nature of their own problem and you've helped them see that then you're the person that they want to work with. Why? Well, you helped me see something about myself that I didn't know. And that means you probably can help me know other things about me that are going to be useful to me in the future, but we don't sell that way. I mean, no, we, generally... we, don't. we don't, we don't, but we will, because this is the next evolution of sales. And I'm sick of B2B, B2C, B2F, B2Nothing. It's about understanding. First of all, if you're going to be in sales, you need to check your intention and understand that you understand that you are in a position to create transformation for people, especially if you're selling something big, you know, with that, that will imply that a person is going to have to go through a lot of change. Are you taking that time to reframe yourself, to know and understand where your own um, pitfalls are? What are your biases? What are your commitments that you're not aware of that are messing up? your ability to help or, or hindering your ability to help. It's not that you're good or bad. Um, Self-awareness, self-regulation. You know, I'm naming some of the qualities of this whole thing we call the EQ, but empathy is 
then the one thing that I can get good at so that I can provide that space. That's what empathy is really, or, or that's the, to me. And again, it's creating that space where I'm out of the picture. And getting ourselves out of the picture is humanly so difficult. We're not wired for that. Our brain is wired to jump in and say, don't look foolish. This person's rejected. They're not going to like you. If you ask that question, they're going to hang up on you. You better not call because they already said no. Um, so switching from those modes requires skill of self awareness, know thyself, go read a book, you know, learn something, go learn something. It's always worth figuring out your own stuff first. I've studied with two Zen masters. They both helped me see things that I couldn't see about myself. And uh, I wouldn't have seen it without them. And but you wanted to see them because you went to study. That's the whole thing. When the when the student is ready, the teacher appears. The last Zen master that I uh, had dinner with when we were in Denver, who's a friend of mine, when I explained to him that I've conquered my fear of death, he uh, explained to me that I'm not afraid of death, that I'm afraid of being helpless. And uh, I didn't like that at all because he saw it before I could see that. And I was like, I can't be helpless. I can't be helpless. Like I have a commitment yeah, I've been self-sufficient since I was 12, right? So like you're telling me that at some point I'm going to have to rely on other people to take care of me. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I think you have some work to do. <laughs> so that's it. Like I, I, would, I didn't want to look at that. I thought it was a fear of death. And now I'm like, you know, it's funny. That's pretty easy now. Helpless. Yeah. I'm afraid of. <laughs> so it's funny because um, it's not funny, but sometimes and and you've just said that you made a career out of wanting to help people and yet you don't want help right okay that's exactly <laughs> that right. is, as exactly i mean that's not exactly because you're you and i'm me but i share that trait i don't I've also been working since I was 12. I sold shoes. I sold clothes. Maybe that's, maybe, maybe that's part of the code. Like maybe part of the code is if, if you are driven by helping other people, I think it's because I, my two primary drivers are significance and growth. And I think that that's the way that I measure that. I would call it contribution, but that's not what I was trying to solve for when I started helping people. I was solving for another problem. So I know that I'm a, plenty aware of that, but maybe you, you can't be helpless if you think that it's your role to go and help others. And so maybe, maybe we figured something out here. You know, this idea of being okay with being vulnerable because being helpless means I need someone else. Well, not helpless. Accepting help uh, inherently makes you vulnerable. And, and there's a lot of courage in that. You know, vulnerability as, as a way of saying, I'm showing up full-hearted with my need. And I need you. I need your help. Because that's what we're expecting others to do so that we can help them. 
become vulnerable to me. Tell me what really is going on. Tell me how helpless you are so I can help you and add value to you. But if we're not willing to do that ourselves, and it's so freaking hard, and perhaps that's what I struggle with. That's why I study empathy and vulnerability, not because the blah, 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 it's such a nice concept. It's really freaking hard to make ourselves vulnerable, the courage in that. And you do it. You show up, you write every day, you have a podcast, you write books, you put yourself out there for criticism, for, you know, do I have the best book? Is that the great, who gives a shit? You show up, right? And so tell your Zen master that you've done a lot of work putting yourself out, out there in the guise of helping others. We're helping ourselves. Of course. I think that's right. I don't know if one person listens to it is fine for me. I don't, I really, really honestly, yes, I would like it to be successful and for people to get value out of it. Sure. One part of me wants to do that, but I'm doing it because I need to do it for me. That's good. You should do it for you and it will help other people. Maybe. And there's, there's a lot of content and there's a lot of things that distract people, but there's, there's not a lot in this particular line, in my opinion. So that when you go out to social media and you start looking at, you know, Twitter, completely divisive Facebook, like not, not a lot of healthy content there. A, A lot of maybe shallow kind of things you know that that you can see but that don't really address what humans are really experiencing especially with the uncertainty that there is right now in a complex you know accelerating disruptive environment that we find ourselves in there's not a lot of stuff that's really good so i'm i'm right now rejecting basically all of that and i'm reading plato you know, I'm going. I was going to ask to, you about the Republic on your, because in your, not your latest. I believe it was on Sunday. I don't remember which day, but I said, look at Anthony. He's talking about his device, leaving it behind. He has Plato's The Republic on his nightstand. Did I get that right? It was actually on my desk at the time, but on your desk. I, I felt like it was insulting to have my cell phone sitting on top of uh, of the Republic. So I was attempting to get into Anna Karenina again, and that's on my nightstand. Um, just because you know, you're reading the Russians. Well, the Russians for sure, but also it's like the discipline to read this book. This the, is just the, about like making myself not. My attention span has shortened because of the devices. Oh, yeah. LinkedIn! Somebody liked my post. I can't, I can't do it anymore. It's exhausting. The Russians though, are the ones that have a very, very strong ability to show you human nature in all its horrible awfulness. Like they, they're, they're really good at it. Yeah. And according to one critic, this is the book. Tolstoy, if you want to understand yeah. human nature. Yeah. No, that's what the Russians do better than anyone. Yeah. Now we're going into nerd talk for, for, uh, book readers. Hey, listen, this is my podcast. I'll talk about whatever. I, and that's what I like. I'm not going to give you the 10 ways that you can, or the three things that you should say to get a sale, because that doesn't work. Just go out there. If you're in a position to add, to transform somebody's life and to add value, go out there, 
think deeply about what it is that you're trying to do. What is your intention? Think deeply about how badly you want it. Think deeply about how willing you're going to be to be vulnerable because you're going to ask your prospect to be vulnerable and, and go read books and listen to podcasts and get training. That's what you do, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. Anthony, what do you do now? How, how do people find you? I'm, you know, what, I'm not very hard to find, I don't think. No, no, you're not. You're all over. You're uh, LinkedIn for sure. Uh, thesalesblog.com. That's where I publish every day. That's the best place for people to go because they can sign up for the newsletter and then they'll get something on Sunday. Um, okay, but maybe this is the, for the next thing. When you talk about routine maintenance in your book, mm-hmm. you know, this discipline to actually, what I call that is cultivation. It's like, is this, this believing in this relentless disciplined approach to your leads where you don't go pick the, the ready ones, but you cultivate and you cultivate instead of hunting. And I love that about what, what you say in your book. Well, I, I have a particular experience. And, and my particular experience is I've worked in a commoditized market where everybody already had a pro- provider. Like everybody already has one. So there are no leads. And mm-hmm. if you want to win them, then I have to take them from somebody else. So there's a book called The Blue Ocean Strategy. Mm-hmm. I lived in the red ocean, like the, the, the bloodiest, like most aggressive competitive part of the ocean. Like that's where I grew up. And what I figured out was that it might take me two years to win an account. It might take me that long. Sometimes it took me seven years to win PetSmart, seven years. I said, that story's in that book, uh, the red book, but the, what was I going to do? Like they had a provider, like I have to keep persisting until something happens. And then something eventually happened. And then the next year they spent $2 million with me. Well, you know, so, you know, exactly. I didn't give up. No, exactly. And, and you know what? Uh, it's, it's interesting you say that. And it occurs to me right now that we are in a red ocean in our business because every single one of your prospects has, um, is living at the competition, which is their own home. Yeah. So and there are other, other options. There's plenty of options available to them. Yeah, but you have to basically, you have to basically understand patiently that eventually um, they will come to a decision that the home no longer works for them. But you can't just give up and wait until they break a hip and somebody yanks them out of their home, because that's a terrible, terrible way. You failed them. You failed them because because you you failed them. Um, you didn't prepare yeah. them. We always say the biggest competition is where a prospect lives in our in our industry. Yeah, but what better. I like about your program is the trust breakthrough. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that means they, you, you taught them something about themselves and that they now have a, an opening. So it's that conversation that happens after you've allowed the space for them to actually examine their commitments their hidden commitments or their, you know, to use that language. You'll like that book, I, Immunity to Change. Okay, so I'm going to read it. It's a little it. science-y, but it's, uh, it's good. Okay, Anthony, I've abused your, of your time already. Um, it's been, as always, an undiluted pleasure and um, to be continued 
and we will uh, we'll do this again and we'll do it live in Santa Barbara, which will be even more fun. I know. I know. I can't wait. So do good work and stay heroic. Absolutely. So that was my conversation with Anthony. You can learn more about Anthony and read his daily articles. I highly recommend them. I love them at the salesblog.com. Thank you to you, Anthony, and thank you for listening to the Ask Alex podcast. I hope you'll join us again next week when I talk with a very special guest, my mom. Until then, stay heroic. Our theme music is Great Scott by Learn Karate. You can find them wherever you get your music. <laughs>